Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Omar Al-Yubaidli, who is the Director of Research at Derisat, a think tank in the Kingdom of Bahrain, an Affiliated Associate Professor of Economics at George Mason University, and an Affiliated Senior Research Fellow at the Mercatus Center. His research interests include political economy, experimental economics, and the economics of the GCC countries. Omar previously served as a member of the Commonwealth of Virginia's Joint Advisory Board of Economists and a visiting professor of economics at the University of Chicago. Welcome, Omar. Thank you. I would like to start with your most recent paper entitled The Science of Using Science Towards an Understanding of the Threats to Scalability, uh, in which you say in, uh, in most government circles, evidence-based programs were once an aspirational goal, then became a gold standard, and now they are the expectation. And researchers have focused almost exclusively on how best to generate data to explore intervention effects and disentangle mechanisms. Yet you say uh, what has been lacking is a scientific understanding of how to make use of the scientific insights generated. Uh, so you also say, as academics, you are often perplexed by the science policy disconnect. Why is so little scholarly research implemented into public policy? Could you talk mm -hmm. a little bit about that paper? Yes. Uh, so as you mentioned, the science has been or evidence-based policy has become a sort of buzzword uh, in policy circles especially in western countries yeah. and in fact uh, uh, one of the manifestations of that is that in many countries starting with the uk i believe uh, what's been called behavioral insights units mm -hmm. have uh, have popped up and they're sort of small scientific units uh, usually independent which generate uh, 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 policy prescriptions based on what's called nudge theory or uh, sort of very non-invasive non, uh, uh, non uh, policies and interventions. Simple things like, for example, when you're trying to get people to uh, uh, pick uh, uh, the, the more prudent 
pension option, making it the one that's in bold font or the one that's presented to you by default. Or yeah. when people go, children go to school, putting the healthy food in options closer to them uh, than the than the unhealthy options. So anyway, all these sorts of policies are, are, are the um, uh, have become the regular output of behavioral insights units, and behavioral insights units are now very much a, a, a functioning component of the an active functioning component of uh, of modern Western governments. Um, but despite uh, uh, you know these uh, uh, these advances, uh, too often one finds a situation where uh, there is a, a lot of excitement about implementing a policy, uh, mm-hmm. but the when it comes to actually based on some research, but when it comes to the implementation phase, we find that things do not go uh, as was expected based on the research that was uh, uh, promoting this uh, intervention. Uh, and this leads to, a, 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 first of all, a wasted resources, and secondly, disenchantment uh, with the scientific process. Uh, and that's potentially, I'm not going to say it's the primary reason, that's potentially a contributor uh, to the sort of you know, anti-expert uh, sentiment that's, uh, that's uh, becoming more prominent these days. Yeah, yeah. And you call it sort of a scale-up problem. And mm-hmm. uh, you identify three, uh, perhaps, uh, issues. One is the statistical inference problem. Are we, are we really taking the right, um, right choices and action? Um, and then when the policy is more broadly implemented, uh, properties of the population over which uh, those policies are implemented, and then you say properties of the situation. So uh, small experiments um, in lab sort of experiments uh, show high power, uh, but when you take it to the field uh, for broad implementation, it appears to fail, right? Right. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, if, if, you, if you take a simple example, uh, let's say that I did uh, an after-school program that's designed to you know, improve children's academic outcomes. Yeah, uh, and maybe I'll start doing this with. A, I'll pick a, a, a neighborhood at a school. Maybe I'll pick one school, and then I'll run a, a, a scientific experiment in that school while I select a, a group of children who receive, who are who are enrolled in the program, and a group of children who are not. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I'll compare outcomes, and I'll find that you know the children who went to the program experienced significantly better outcomes. And then I'll try to apply this, I'll report this to the you know, local school authorities and maybe even to the federal school authorities if in the US and then maybe they'll be convinced they'll try to something, they'll try to roll this program out at a much larger scale. Yeah. And what we find often, not always, but often, is that uh, in the attempt to scale up from this original small scale experiment to something that is much broader, uh, much more comprehensive, uh, uh, the effect that we uh, that, that was detected in the small scale experiment, that is the reason why people were getting very excited about the program in the first place, uh, diminishes heavily, uh, is heavily attenuated when you when you roll out the program at the at the level of the population or at a much higher level. So yeah. when you're scaling up, things uh, move back towards zero in terms of detected effects. Uh, and as you said, there's uh, various classes of reason for that. The three primary ones we focused on in the paper are firstly, in, in, ones relating to statistical inference, which we'll cover a little later, ones relating to the characteristics of the people, one relating to the characteristics of the situation. 
Uh, and these, as I say, understanding if you want to try to, the scale up effect is a very much a, a scientific phenomenon which can be studied. Uh, and therefore the first step to towards, uh, you know, uh, dealing with it or, or, or to uh, imposing or launching countermeasures is to fully understand it as, as, a, as a concept in of itself. Yeah, there are some analogous uh, aspects of this in pharmaceuticals. And, you know, I often wondered, um, and I just, uh, I'm just speculating here, I want to get your uh, insights into it. Mm-hmm. Uh, statistical inference, for example, you know, in pharmaceuticals, when we do clinical trials, many different types of trials are done, as you know. Yes. Um, we collect a lot of data, um, and it's multifactorial data, and the statistical tools that are used, because pharmaceuticals is a regulated industry, and ultimately it is really creating a document that is approved by the FDA, that's objective function for a pharmaceutical company, they tend to use, uh, at least from my perspective, um, fairly antiquated statistical methodologies, um, mm-hmm. linear regressions, p-values, and you know, in an industry which shows very high placebo effect for any trial, uh, it's often very easy to get to that threshold, uh, whatever threshold the FDA is looking for, uh, by slight, you know, changes uh, in your methodology. I I don't know in social sciences what the situation is. So, I mean, you're right that when in, in pharmacological, formal pharmacological trials, the statistical methods used are not very uh, sophisticated. But that's usually be- not because of a lack of sophistication but, uh, 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 in the method in of itself. It's more because when you're doing uh, randomized control trials, yeah. you don't really need, you don't even need necessarily an regression. You can just do something as simple as basic t-tests, two, two sample t-tests. Because if you've, if you've randomized your sample correct, you randomized your uh, uh, treatment and, and controls properly, then, then all you need need is uh, is twin tests or manually yeah. tests or very simple uh, parametric or non-parametric tests. However, um, uh, the, uh, the the there are related problems uh, uh, both in pharmacological trials and outside pharmacological trials, which uh, which are based on the statistical methods used, which generate some of the uh, um, errors. Uh, that lead to scale-up effects. Just to give you a very simple example. Yeah. Uh, uh, we have what's called the uh, uh, the uh, the winner's curse uh, um, in 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 uh, in publication bias. So yeah. let's say that uh, I'm trying. Um, if we take let's let's say that you know there's a potential cure, let's say for COVID twenty, COVID nineteen. <laughs> excuse me. COVID-20 um, COVID uh, is coming, I think. Yes, yeah, <laughs> So there's a potential cure for COVID-19. And it, it, actually, the reality is this is an ineffective cure. Yeah. Um, but 20 different labs experiment with this cure. Um, and according to you know, traditional statistical inference, um, you, 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 you'll, you'll reject, uh, you'll, you'll gather data and conduct a hypothesis test and reject and the hypothesis stuff will be set up so that there's a 5% chance of, uh, uh, of, of, of you thinking that there is an effect when there isn't actually effect. Yeah. Um, a type one error. Uh, and so um, among the 20 places that try, on average, one of them uh, should find that there is an effect when we know there isn't an effect, and 19 should correctly find there's no effect. 
Right. Uh, now, among these, if all 20 of these labs uh, try to disseminate their results and, and, and publish them and communicate them to the media and so on and so forth, the one that's going to get the most attention is going to be the one that says, hey, we, we found statistical evidence in favor of the cure. Yes. Uh, uh, and the 19 that didn't are just going to be sort of swept under the carpet. If they are going to get published, then we publish in lower ranked journals and so on and so forth. So the problem is that when a scientist or a journalist then picks up this one out of the 20 results and reads it, they don't realize or they don't behave as though this is one, this is the one that was published, there were 19 that failed. They only find in the literature that only one's been published and it's this one. So they treat it as if it's, uh, uh, as if it's uh, much more likely to be true than it actually is. Yes. Uh, and this is, uh, and this is, as I say, called, well, this is a bit of, it's similar to what's called the winner's curse in auction theory, whereby if we're all bidding, um, uh, if I told you there's a, there's an oil field, uh, we don't know exactly how much oil there is, but we're going to bid for uh, uh, rights to extract oil from it. Then on average, the person that wins is going to be the one who overbid for that, uh, uh, for that oil field, because uh, when lots of people are bidding, uh, uh, the one who ends up bidding, the one who wins is the one who overestimated uh, the uh, the value of it. And that's yeah. something that's similar with the publication bias. So that's an example of an inferential problem. Uh, and it's not because the techniques are not high tech. It's because the, the data, there are assumptions about the way in which the data is presented that are not accurate. They think that this one study that found the result was, uh, uh, was representative of all studies conducted, when in fact, it's not representative of all studies and 19 out of the 20 studies found no effect, but they're not given the same uh, media or, or scientific coverage. Yeah. So, well, so more generally, Omar, then, you know, suppose we deploy, um, you know, 20 different experiments, um, not by humans, but by a machine, uh, maybe 20 different machines in a, in a noisy, um, you know, random data field uh, to prove a hypothesis. What you're saying is that one of those 20 by random chance is going to show power or show, show it to go effect. Mm -hmm. And we say, let's pick that one because it shows effect. Yes. And other 19 uh, <laughs> never, get, uh, never get the light of the day. Right, and, 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 and that's fine if when you read that, the, 20, the one that did find the result, you're aware of the existence of the 19, but the way in which scientific results are disseminated, both via academic journals and in terms of media coverage, the 19 don't get the same coverage. And so people who read that one result are unaware of, of the 19 failures. Right. Uh, and that's, that paves the road for a, a, an inferential error. Yeah, so this is a big issue, right? So we have, I believe, uh, something like 500 trials going on, 175 of them are in the vaccine area. I'm talking about COVID-19. Right. Uh, in, in a field of such intensity, it's very likely that we're going to find data that, that supports something because there's so many different experiments being run. And so would you say, um, you know, when, when you go into something like this with, so many different experiments being run, our chance of actually finding something real is actually lower? Well, so in, in, the, case, in the special case of pharmacological trials, yeah. uh, these, uh, these inferential biases that I'm discussing are, 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 are you know, widely understood. 
Uh, and so there's a, um, a, 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 a there are protocols that companies have to follow yeah. uh, in order to minimize the likelihood that these kind of errors are made. Uh, the simplest uh, example being what's called pre-registration. So before a trial is conducted, uh, uh, there has to be a, a, a formal uh, um, you know, uh, declaration that this trial is going to be conducted. Yeah. Uh, so you can't have a situation where I ha I try, I keep doing the trial 10 times and the one time it works is the one time I report it and the nine times it didn't work, I, I, I don't mention it. Yeah. Uh, so, so uh, you know, FDA and its analogs in all countries uh, put very high inferential and they, they require lots of replications. Uh, and so in general, in pharmaceutical trials, the likelihood is, is of, of, of these false positives is, is, is much lower than it is uh, in, in social sciences because yeah. this, the, the, the authorities regulating and overseeing the deployment of these products uh, are, are aware and have imposed protocols that, that, that decreases. But if we're going to do the same thing, let's say that as, a, as, an, as an alternative, uh, we look at uh, you know, what is the effect of wearing masks on the transmission of COVID which is somewhere between, you know, this mixture of social sciences and public health. But certainly the research that is done on that area does not, is not subjected to the same sort of rigorous protocols that are in pharmaceutical trials. And so we should expect to see uh, uh, what's called the Proteus effect. Yeah. Uh, the Proteus effect being that you get, for example, some results that show, oh, it's positive because of this selection, uh, selected reporting of results. And then you get a bunch of result papers being published saying, actually, no, there's no effect. And you sort of gyrate from people thinking there is an effect to people think there's no effect. Because once people are convinced there is an effect, it becomes attractive to publish a paper which says there's no effect. And yeah. then when, once everybody thinks there's no effect, it becomes once again attractive to publish a paper which says there is an effect. So you get these sort of swings from extreme to extreme. Uh, uh, and certain aspects of COVID are likely to yield that. Uh, uh, but when it comes to, you know, uh, well-regulated pharmaceutical interventions, that's relatively unlikely. Yeah, so, so that's a good point, Omar. So, you know, it seems to me that if the outcomes are very measurable and objective, uh, then those protocols, uh, protocols work. Uh, but even in pharmaceuticals, uh, in certain therapeutic areas like pain, for example, um, when the measurement is not very precise and objective, uh, the chance of you know these types of errors are a lot higher. So I would imagine in social sciences arena, what we are measuring is not really precise most often, right? So it's 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 not so much as the imprecision as it is the uh, lack of uh, um, uh, uh, clarity on on what the designated outcomes are prior to the start. So. Yep. If we take a, uh, let's say that I'm, you know, doing a standard pharmaceutical trial on, let's say, a cancer treatment, uh, it's very clear in the cancer treatment, for example, what my outcome measures are going to be. Maybe it's, you know, years of life or uh, uh, various uh, well-defined uh, measures of, 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 uh, of well-being, of health. Yeah. But if we take something a, a bit more vague that hasn't been studied very much, let's say I'm conducting a, 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 a study to work out uh, what uh, uh, what type of um, uh, let's say uh, drugs help people with their mental health issues during COVID? Mm -hmm. um, 
here, you know, the outcome measure, you know, I say mental health, well, mental health can be many different things. Right. Um, I could come up with a hundred different measures of mental health. Uh, and, and it's not something where everybody's agreed, well, there's one or two certain measures. And so what that happens is that maybe if I run an experiment, um, seven or eight of those major method, major measures, I find there's no effect. But if I keep cycling through my method, my outcomes, I'll find one where there is an effect just randomly. Yeah. And that will be the one that I selectively report uh, uh, and, and make it look like I found, I found an effect. And, and then I'll selectively uh, censor the data that I gathered uh, on the other uh, outcome measures um, and, and uh, to, to hide the fact that, uh, that that I've probably found a false neg false positive. Whereas, as I say, in most medical trials, um, because the, the, the outcome measures are more systematized, uh, there's less room for that sort of, uh, uh, you know, um, statistical gymnastics. Right, right. So in the paper, so even if even if we take care of all those statistical inference problems in the lab experiment, the the, the, the other issue that um, that you go into is when you try to apply it at the policy level for a broad population, the properties of that population is going to be different from from what is tried in the lab, and hence it's not really scalable, right? Right, right. So, I mean, if you want a simple example, let's say that I was going to um, uh, look at, and this, is, this, this applies even in pharmacological trials. Yeah. Let's say that I was going to do uh, uh, looking for a cure for obesity or a treatment that helps people overcome obesity. Uh, then um, at the beginning, I have to ask for some volunteers. Uh, and let's say it's some you know, experimental new age thing. Who are going to be the people that are going to volunteer? Uh, probably people who are, you know, facing some sort of, you know, life or death. Maybe if they don't, this doesn't work out for them, then, then they're facing serious health complications. Or people who are, you know, in a very bad situation and have a very strong incentive to do whatever they can in order to improve. Yeah. Um, so it wouldn't be surprising to find a very positive effect for this group. So then I find this positive effect and then I, you know, I conduct very sophisticated and rigorous statistical inference so that I don't fall into the traps we discussed at the start. Then I try to roll this out. Uh, and although obesity is a widespread problem, I'll find that uh, when we implement the program, other people, because they're not as desperate as the people who volunteered, uh, maybe aren't as committed to the program, maybe they don't stick to it as much, maybe, you know, maybe they, you know, they lose, they lose their... Uh, commitment uh, and so it doesn't have the same effect on them and there what's happening is that there's a systematic difference between the people who volunteered for the trial and the people who are going to be uh, um, uh, enrolled in the program after my trial has proved to be successful right and so so there's a biased selection problem in the lab and and so um so in social sciences, uh, since it's not really regulated, these uh, these experiments, um, uh, isn't there more flexibility to to make that population more, uh, that sample I should say more representative, or, or is it is it because the uh, the investigator, so to speak, wants to show effect and, and really creating a population that's more likely to show show the effect. So you've got several several forces uh, uh, acting. 
One is one you described, which is that, you know, the, the scientist, he has a limited budget, have limited resources. Yeah. Uh, and so if they're gonna, they've only probably got one chance to show this intervention works. And if they've only got one chance, they're going to look for the sample, which is going to give them the best chance of it working. Yeah. Even if that means that this sample is unrepresentative, because they'll say, okay, we'll cross that bridge when it comes. But as a proof of concept, I at least want to show that there exists a subset of the population for which this is true. Right. Um, so that's you know active uh, strategy by the scientist. But even setting that aside, even if the scientist is being you know uh, is just taking whatever they can, first of all, you've got the issue of convenience, uh, mm. which is you know so I, I'm a social scientist and uh, uh, you know in the university setting we often do experiments on you know young adults uh, and and you know this may or may not bias the results, but we go for it. Uh, not because we do we do we don't think it biases because this group is happens to be you know convenient it's cheap to get to recruit them and so on and so forth and if I've got a limited budget if I wanted to do an experiment on you know the effect of for example uh, uh, isolation on on uh, public on uh, uh, on mental health yeah then it's gonna in a university setting it's going to be a lot cheaper for me to run this experiment on you know, uh, 21 year old children, 20 year old, 21 year old adults than it is for me to run it on people across all age groups because I have to recruit people from outside the university in the latter case and pay them more and so on and so forth. Right. So sometimes just the fact that it's a convenient sample and sometimes it's because we don't even know. I mean, the uh, uh, it's uh, uh, whenever you take a sample, uh, whatever method you know, you may unwittingly be taking a non-presenting sample. You may be trying to take away, but reality is, you know, uh, this is science and we don't know we're at the frontier and we don't know uh, what, what, what interacts uh, with, the, with the characteristics of our sample. And the only way to find out is to do it, uh, make the mistake, so to speak, and then learn from it. Right, right. Yeah, this is, this is really interesting, Omar. I don't know if this translates into social science. So as you know, one of the trends in, in um, pharmaceuticals is toward personalized medicine, right? So, you know, in effect, um, at the limit, you could say there is no common treatment. There is a treatment that can be personalized for an individual. And okay. so, so when you, you know, when you think about clinical trials, then you are then forced to look at subsets of the data uh, to say, you know, for this subset with this diagnostic companion, uh, this, this therapy works. So you could actually come up with 10 different subsets with differing doses and differing, you know, differing administration. Uh, and one could actually argue that that might be even better in the, in the long run because no human is the same as another human. So this idea that you can mass manufacture a single dose medicine and, and shower it on a large population uh, to get good effect is actually a false notion. Now, we don't know, we cannot really do that in a social science policy type uh, arena, right? So, I mean, no, I, the, actually, we, you know, so what you're describing is, is not the typical case. I think ideally, uh, we would love to be able to tailor our medical interventions uh, to the level of the individual. But the reality is that there are economies of scale in, in delivering uh, medical interventions. Uh, be they at the, uh, you know, because of the chemicals side of it, or even the administrative side of it. Um, you know, if I'm trying to do, for example, an, a, an alcoholic, something that helps alcoholics get over their, uh, uh, deal with their problems, 
then it's very difficult for me to devise a, a, a tailored program. It's easy for me to have Alcoholics Anonymous sessions with hundreds of people where I deliver the same material. Uh, so, um, but uh, on occasion, it is possible to tailor and where possible, one would like to do that. Uh, and in social sciences, we do have, uh, you know, we do have something similar to some extent. To give you an illustration, uh, the, uh, uh, we have uh, programs for helping children uh, uh, improve their learning. Um, yes. uh, at the very crudest level, it might be something that is just a function of your child's age group. Uh, you know, if you're three, if you're four, do this. If you're in grade one, do this, and so on and so forth. Uh, but the more sophisticated ones, uh, which may be based on uh, uh, trials, uh, will tailor to other characteristics of the child. For example, you know, do they have any learning disabilities? Uh, do they have uh, 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 certain uh, skills, certain attributes which they're, uh, which they're evolved compared to other children in their cohorts? Do they have certain time constraints and so on and so forth? So, you know, there are tailoring does exist. Yeah. Uh, but this is not something that's usually done at the cutting edge of science. This is more done as a sort of follow-up uh, by technicians because mm -hmm. uh, scientists tend to be more uh, uh, enamored with general rules and principles rather than, you know, the, you know, the sort of somewhat uninspiring uh, uh, follow-up work of working out, you know, uh, how to tailor something to, as various demographic attributes change. Uh, so that's why they don't get as much attention. Uh, but that sort of stuff definitely does go on in the background. Uh, it might also be, you know, sort of uh, unique technology for, you know, uh, again, going back to pharmaceuticals for personalized medicine to work, because the idea there is you have, you know, maybe AI-based techniques, you have diagnostics. So essentially, it can tell you X is different from Y and, and custom tailor a program for X. So you know, it, it requires copious application of technology. Uh, but I think in the social sciences arena, you know, the infrastructure that we have currently uh, probably won't allow us to, to think about uh, those types of things. Because uh, as you say in the paper, uh, we are sort of on, you know, um, uh, ground floor now, um, you know, lab experiments come out, it proves something, policymakers and the public looks at it and say, it may not work uh, for the whole population and they discard it. Uh, they connect between what social scientists find and what policymakers ultimately implement. Now, a third bucket that you talk about in the paper, Omar, is properties of the situation. Uh, mm -hmm. Could you elaborate on that as well? Yeah, so, I mean, it's, again, it's got several sub-dimensions, but uh, as an illustration, uh, let's say that uh, um, uh, one example is rising costs. So let's say that I wanted to uh, uh, run a program where I uh, stick with the education example, where I teach uh, um, uh, children after school. Yeah. Uh, uh, and at the beginning, uh, I, when I'm doing my trial, it, it should be relatively easy for me to get high quality teachers to enroll in the program yeah. uh, because I only need a handful. Um, but when I try to scale this up to, let's say, doing it at the level of a county, at the level of a city, a level of a state or a country, then I'm going to need hundreds or maybe even thousands of, of teachers. Uh, and procuring uh, you know, thousands of high-quality teachers, it's going to cost a lot more per teacher than it did when I was only hiring three or four. Right. Uh, um, so one of two things happens. Either I do get the same, maintain the same quality, but it's going to cost me a lot more. 
and that cost is going to go into the uh, uh, cost benefit calculation. So even though I get the same benefits, I'm going to come at a much higher cost. Yeah. Or I decide to keep the cost per you know per student the same. Uh, in that case, I'm just going to end up attracting lower quality teachers inadvertently, and then therefore the benefits of the program will decrease. Uh, uh, so the result in both cases is that uh, I'll find a lower effectiveness of the uh, of the intervention uh, uh, as a direct consequence of scaling up. Yeah. So uh, are the costs going up uh, at scale because you cannot find a large number of quality teachers? Uh, so in this example, it, it, yeah, the process of finding high quality teachers is, is you know, is a costly one. And, and you know, when I'm doing it at a small scale, maybe let's say uh, um, I can actually get people. I may know the teachers if I'm the principal investigator. I, I may have a good relationship with the school principal and I've got some willing volunteers. But all these different sort of uh, uh, the, the, the factors that allowed me to run the experiment are not scalable facts. Uh, uh, and so, you know, I may know a few teachers personally. Uh, to give an example, John List, who's one of the co-authors on the study, he's done a lot of experiments with big, with some big companies, and and a lot of those are, are, are feasible because he has a personal relationship with, with some of the you know high-ranking members of those companies. Yeah. And that's enough to you know get him the resources he needs within the organisation to run the experiment. But if he was to try to do that at the same thing at the level of the country, he he wouldn't he doesn't have enough relationships with people to. To, to procure talent at the same cost. Right, right, right. Okay, okay. Um, I'm going to jump into another policy paper that you have that just came up. Uh, the listeners will be very interested in. It's entitled, Understanding How the Coronavirus Affects the Global Economy, a Guide for Non-Economists. Right. Um, could you give us the gist of uh, what is in that paper? Yeah, so the, uh, um, you know, the, the COVID obviously has been causing all sorts of uh, uh, health consequences and, and, and also very tangible economic consequences. Uh, but it can be, uh, um, some of those economic consequences are very clear. You know, for example, people can't travel uh, because there's, you know, there's uh, lockdowns on international travel. Then whoever works in the airline industry is going to be, uh, or tourism industry is going to be seriously uh, affected. Yeah. Uh, some of those are more, some of the impacts are more subtle. Uh, uh, and so what this paper is about is helping people who are non-economists get to grips with all the sort of different types of short run and long run economic impacts that, uh, that are being, uh, uh, that are associated with COVID so that they can, uh, um, uh, you know, getting a better understanding of, of, of what sort of uh, uh, countermeasures we should be considering. Mm -hmm. And so, so what? So what do you think? Um, there are some conflicting uh, data. Uh, for example, um, you know uh, some of the macro parameters that you look at, like unemployment, um, uh, layoffs, uh, companies going bankrupt, uh, GDP growth, uh, things like that, all seem negative. Uh, but we have a rising stock market. Yeah. Um, and so, how do you? How do you rationalize that? That, that, one's, that one's quite easy. Basically, um, there's two things that go together. One thing is that uh, um, most central banks have, un, un, uh, have affected very large quantitative stimu monetary stimulus programs. So what they're doing is effectively printing money uh, yeah. uh, and using it in an attempt to both uh, help banks and normal companies stave off bankruptcy and also an attempt to stimulate the economy. Uh, now, 
usually when they come from when the central bank prints money and gives everybody more money, then people will go out and use that money to buy goods and services, uh, and that will lead to uh, an in some uh, some increase in prices because the economy will not be able to uh, match the increase in demand with an increase in supply. So that's yeah. why we usually expect when there's a monetary stimulus, there'll be some sort of price inflation. But uh, in, in the case of COVID, first of all, people can't go out and spend a lot of their money. Yeah. Uh, and even if they can, they, they don't want to because they're, you know, they don't want to go outside the house. Uh, and secondly, they're also um, very fearful of the future. So they maybe they want to save the money they're getting rather than spending it. Uh, and so in both of those things lead to people uh, uh, looking to save their money and, and rather than just putting it in the banking and getting zero interest because interest rates are so low at the moment, they buy stocks. Uh, uh, and that's what's causing the increased stock prices on the one hand. Mm-hmm. And then on the other hand is that, you know, uh, uh, stock traders, speculators, they're not, you know, they're not omniscient. Uh, they're humans just like the rest of us. They do have better knowledge than most of us, but they are largely just as clueless as anybody else is in terms of the long-term effects of COVID. So they don't know how to, uh, you know, what, what is a reasonable price for a stock, but they're seeing that there's a general trend of increase. So they're trying to ride that bubble and, 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 and take home some profits. Uh, so that's kind of what's called herding behavior uh, combined with an, with an asset bubble. Uh, so those two things are what's causing the increase in asset prices. And it's nothing to do with uh, uh, anyone seeing any good thing happening uh, uh, in the economy that's conflicting with the other indicators. Right, right. So typically, you know, from an efficient market hypothesis, we would, we would think that um, players with, you know, without a very high capital constraints uh, could be on the other side of the trade, like hedge funds and, and so on. And, and so if you're seeing an asset price bubble that is not sustainable, um, those more sophisticated invest, uh, well, uh, traders, I should say, uh, should mediate that. But in this case, uh, I think what you're saying, Omar, is that, um, you know, there is a notion that you cannot fight the Fed. Because, you know, it's a bit like the floodgates have been opened and you can't really swim against it. So is it possible that the more sophisticated traders are sort of out of the market? I think that uh, uh, the, uh, well, I mean, the, the, the sheer volume of, of liquidity being pumped into the markets at the moment is just, you know, without precedent, it's just 2008 and now the only times in history with this sort of liquidity being pumped in. Uh, so, uh, uh, so, you know, and, and the Fed also signaled that it's not going to stop. It's just going to do yeah. whatever it feels is necessary. So you have a, you know, an open checkbook from the Fed. So if you've got this open checkbook from the Fed, then it's entirely rational to, uh, um, to try to time the market if you've got a lot of capital uh, to take a risk timing the market. Uh, and that's what a lot of these hedge funds are rather than being, you know, super. And at, at the same time, you know, the alternative to stocks, which is traditionally bonds, yeah. you know, you've got bonds uh, the German bonds have got negative yields at the moment right. uh, because, uh, uh, because U- European interest rates have been at zero for about three years now, almost four years. Uh, uh, so the alternative is very unpalatable uh, uh, and inadvertently uh, the Fed and other central banks are, are pushing people into, uh, you know, asset bubbles and and stock market gambling uh, by maintaining such low interest rates while maintain, while pumping that much liquidity in. 
yeah yeah and the other other alternative is of course real assets and uh, i read something that there is a massive real estate uh, appreciation in china in the midst of the covid as well so that 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 might also indicate there are very few things with their money <laughs> uh, and you know they cannot go out and buy stuff so they cannot consume it uh, yeah. they cannot invest into fixed income uh, securities so you have stocks and then you could p- potentially have some real assets like real estate yeah i mean you're right i mean real estate is an alternative and i'm sure some people are putting money in real estate but the problem with real estate is that it's not as easy you know it's a lot it's a, lot, it's a much more lumpy uh asset uh, uh it's it's hard to you know buy a flat in beijing and then a flat in london and a flat in paris and so on and so forth yeah uh, uh and uh, and secondly uh, uh the you know the it, it's a lot less liquid than uh, than stocks so if you're looking to time the market which all of these people are <laughs> uh, they need to they need to have a liquid market yeah yeah so in conclusion omar you know if you were to speculate for the next couple of years um where do you think growth is going to be uh where do you think the global economies are sort of going to settle uh, so i think that um you know it's difficult to speculate until we have uh, a clear you know, so i think a vaccine it seems there's a good chance that the vaccine will come yeah so um if we um if we get past so because you know there was still some uncertainty if you up until recently that whether be be a vaccine or not you know people saying like hiv we still don't have a vaccine for hiv um but if we are going to have a vaccine then yeah. that definitely means that uh, we have a hope of resuming uh, uh you know some degree of normality once that vaccine is widely available so then the question comes when will that vaccine become available because as you're seeing you know the governments are not many many very uh, uh prosperous uh, or very very co- nominally very powerful governments are doing not a very good job of dealing with the health aspects of the uh, right. of the covid so i think at the moment everyone is waiting for a vaccine because uh, uh, uh even if your country is managing to uh, deal with the public health side of it well it can't open its borders and it can't you know uh, go back to international travel and and tourism and so on and so forth if if this public health crisis is continuing um so if the uh, so i think but now that the vaccine looks quite likely and we can probably expect that sometime in the first half of 2021 is what i was reading today yeah uh, and so what i would expect is that you know um from the second half of 2021 uh re- a resumption of of rapid growth uh, uh to make up for uh you know what's happened now but we have a major problem in the long run which is these you know huge debts huge public debts and that's going to weigh heavily on growth because even if we do get the vaccine and we manage to avoid uh, uh, any other pandemics for the next you know 10 15 years the debt burden on some uh, some countries many countries has become very very high uh, mm. and that's going to uh, um yeah, in, in drag growth back down Uh, until somebody comes up with a solution to these high public debts yeah so 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 you would say then you know arrival of a vaccine is a necessary uh necessary requirement uh, at least for a tactical bomb but even in the presence of a vaccine uh we're going to have long term 
economic issues. And the, and the problem with the vaccine also is that, you know, uh, flu vaccines are, uh, let's say, 65% effective. Let's say we get a really good vaccine at 70% uh, effective vaccine. And if compliance rates are as, as they are for flu uh, for 40-50%, you don't really have good level immunity coverage in the population with that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, it, uh, it seems... Um, it seems difficult, right? I mean, we cannot get to herd immunity without a vaccine. That's very clear. And it is also unclear if we can get to herd immunity with the vaccine. And and then, you know, there are mutations to think about. Uh, every year, the flu is different. There are already indications that COVID-19 is mutating, which would then mean that it's an yearly cycle that you have to get in front of uh, every year as well. So, yeah, it's tough to speculate, but there appears to be a lot of headwinds for the global economies. Yeah, and you've also got to add to that that um, there's a growing anti-vaccine you know, movement. <laughs> uh, so some people, you know, just flat out refuse to take a vaccine and that number is increasing. So, uh, uh, but I think that, uh, um, you know, once, if, when, once a vaccine is available, uh, the uh, uh, governments and societies have come to the conclusion that th- this, you know, lockdown and isolation, and social distancing, is, is, you know, is so bad for mental health that uh, uh, they would rather, uh, you know, either take the vaccine or not take the vaccine, but try to get life back to normal, uh, because yeah. uh, because continuation of the current state is 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 just is just gonna make is making life not worth living for many people. On that note, uh, <laughs> it has been great. Uh, thanks so much for the time that you spent with me. And uh, good luck with all the policy research that you're doing. My pleasure. Thanks very much for having me. Thank you. Bye.